Um, today's scripture reading will be taken from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, and also 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And from chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Bibiana, thanks for reading scripture for us. And I'm so encouraged to uh, work with you on staff, looking forward to laboring alongside you in the work of the gospel. Uh, indeed, we have much to be thankful for in this season, and so great to see us all here in person. It's so encouraging after a season of being apart that we can again gather as God's people. So let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed that you are faithful God. We thank you that you remain unchanging and that you are ever gracious and merciful. We thank you that we can rest in your love for us. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, Father, we pray that you would quieten our hearts, that you would open our hearts to you. Uh, Father, prepare us to receive from you. We pray that your word would strengthen us, would encourage us, would spur us on as we live as elect exiles in a fallen world. Give us grace that we might glorify you in all that we do, wherever we are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you've probably never heard of uh, Miran Karimi Nasseri, or Alfred, as he calls himself. Uh, Alfred is an Iranian-born refugee who, after a complicated series of events, found himself in France without any internationally recognized documents. So officially, Alfred has no identity and does not belong to any country. Because he didn't have a passport or papers, Alfred could neither enter nor leave France. They didn't allow him to enter the country. They didn't allow him to board a plane because he didn't have a passport. So Alfred was stranded at the Charles de Gaulle International Airport in Paris. And he lived at the airport. Listen to this. He lived at the airport for 18 years. Years. I think we complain if we have a long layover of our, if our flight is delayed, but Alfred lived at the airport for 18 years, from 1988 to 2006. Uh, the basement of Terminal 1, a little corner in that basement, was Alfred's home. Uh, you know, he was surrounded by a luggage trolley, his bags, his boxes, and whatever else he owned. So this, that was Alfred. You may not have heard of Alfred, but you may have seen the movie. The Terminal, which was based on the events of Alfred's life. I, I think the, the issue of uh, being a refugee is very much in the forefront this past week. You know, I think we've seen events unfold in Afghanistan. And Alfred's story is one example of the plight 
of refugees. It's a, it's a modern crisis, or maybe not so modern, but it is a, it is a crisis uh, in, in our day. You know, life is hard as a refugee because we don't have an identity and you don't belong anywhere. You're just kind of stuck in limbo, as it were. Or Jesus' followers are like spiritual refugees. Because our identity isn't ultimately found in the things of this world, we can feel like we don't belong here. This life can feel like we are in transit, en route to our destination. And we won't feel completely comfortable here because we're longing for our true home. But until we get there, it won't be easy to remain faithful. In the words of the hymn, Amazing Grace, we will face many troubles, toils, and snares. And as we live in a fallen world, as we pass through, we may be tempted to give up, or we may be tempted to give in. We may be discouraged, anxious, fearful, or we may be tempted to compromise, to conform to this world just to fit in, so we won't stand out as much. We may even be ashamed of the gospel as we live as refugees in this wilderness. Living through a pandemic for the past 18 months or more, some of us may be feeling tired and discouraged. And even if things are going well for us now, uh, suffering and tough times will come. I think a, a, past, a wise pastor once said, if, if you're not suffering, just give it some time. So how are we preparing ourselves for suffering? You know, how, how, and there may, there may be others around us as well who are hurting. How can we also prepare them for suffering? How can we prepare ourselves and them to live with hope amid the trials and temptations of life? Now, if we are hoping for our best life now, we will be disappointed. Trouble will drive us to despair. And if we are to press on through tough times, then we need to have a sure hope of something far better. So what hope will enable us to endure the pains of the present? So what hope will stand the test of life in the wilderness? You know, what hope can our brothers and sisters in Christ who live in difficult and dangerous places like Afghanistan continue to cling to even as things fall apart. So we'll be starting a new sermon series today focused on the theme of hope. And we'll first be going through 1 Peter in the New Testament, and then we'll be looking at the minor prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And both these books have something in common. They, they both focus on the suffering of God's people, and they address God's people in their pain, and, and they point us to the hope that we have in God Himself. And that's my prayer for us as we go through this sermon series, that we will put aside false hopes that don't finally satisfy or don't finally help us. That we'll lay these false hopes aside and that we will cling on to our true hope in God Himself. That's my prayer for us as we go through these two books over the next couple of months. The Apostle, wrote, uh, the Apostle Peter wrote 1 Peter to Christians scattered across Asia Minor, not too far from modern-day Afghanistan. He wrote this letter to believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And this region covers nearly the whole of modern-day Turkey. 
And these Christians were experiencing the pain of not belonging. Because they followed Jesus, they were ostracized by their community and by the culture. Family and friends were cutting ties with them because, these, because they became Christians. These Christians lost their jobs, they lost their livelihoods, they lost their status in society. And some of them may have been wavering in their faith, you know, perhaps doubting the truth of the gospel. You know, while they suffered, they, they might have wondered, is this really worth it? Is it really worth it to lose so much for the sake of following Jesus? Perhaps some of them even began to doubt the goodness of God. If, if God is good, then why, are, why is this happening to us? Why are we in so much trouble if God is good? So the Apostle Peter writes to these believers to encourage them to press on. Don't give up. Press on. And the, this verse in chapter 5 best sums up the aim of Peter. Chapter 5, verse 12. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So Peter writes to these believers and his his purpose is to declare to them the true grace of God. This is how God has been gracious to you. This is how God is at work in your life, in the past, in the present, and in the future. And because this is the true grace of God, stand firm. Don't give up. Remember how God is gracious and cling on to the hope that you have in this gracious God. So this is Peter's purpose as he writes this letter to them. And I hope that we cling on to this true grace of God as well, that we stand firm in it. This is the hope that will help us to persevere through trials. And in 1 Peter, he unpacks how God's grace is working in our lives, past, present, and future. And here in the first two verses that Bibiana read for us, Peter points us to God's grace by reminding us of two things, who we are, and what God has done for us, which are the two points as we go through the, these two verses this morning. Who we are and what God has done for us. So, who we are. So, First Peter is addressed to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Right? It's a very rich description of Christians. So this is how Peter describes our identity as Jesus' followers. Believers are elect. Right? What does it mean to be elect? It means that we follow Jesus because, he, because God has graciously chosen us to be His people. Now think about this. If you, if you feel like a refugee in the wilderness of this world, you feel like you don't have an identity in this world, this is encouraging because when we face rejection in this world, the, we have an identity that God has given to us. You know, the Christians to whom Peter was writing were ostracized by their family and friends. In chapter 4, verse 4, Peter says Christians were being maligned for forsaking their former way of life. And their family and friends didn't understand why they didn't live like they used to. Why, why don't you do the things that you used to do? You know, why are you different from us now? And, and they would malign them because they stood out in that way. And in turning to Jesus we are also turning away from the ways of this world. And we're leaving this world behind. That's, that's what following Jesus looks like. You know, we forsake 
this world, the ways of this world, and we turn to Him, we trust Him and we walk in His ways. And, and this will make us stand out. And this will make us different. And Jesus Himself warned His followers, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, and Jesus says, but I chose you, elect, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This fallen world opposes God. Therefore, it will reject those who are God's people. We may be laughed at, left out, scorned, cast aside, perhaps even killed because of who we are, because of who we belong to. And this is hard because we all want to be accepted and to belong. You know, we all long to be, fit in, to be approved. But Peter reminds us that we can take heart as God's people. We are beloved. You know, this identity that we suffer for is also the source of our comfort, assurance and encouragement. God has chosen us to be His treasured possession. As Paul says in Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And to be God's elect is very humbling. God did not choose us because, we, because of anything good in us. You know, as God reminds the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7, He says to them, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord, has, that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. Therefore, let us boast in God, not ourselves. God did not choose us because we somehow deserved the right to be chosen. We didn't earn the right to be the elect. No, God chose us simply because He loves us. And He loves us because He loves us. I think that's the, that's the reason God gives to Israel in Deuteronomy 7. He loves us because of His generous grace and His lavish love. You know, and this is tremendously assuring for those of us who live in a fallen world. You know, since our election doesn't depend on us, our hope doesn't ultimately depend on us either. Now, our hope in God is secure because He is the one who loves us, because He is the one who set His love on us, because He is the one who took the initiative to choose us for Himself. And we can trust Him. And we can be secure in Him, trusting that He is faithful even when we are faithless. His sovereign choice and call are irrevocable because God doesn't change His mind. Therefore, God will hold us fast until the end and when our hope shall change to glad fruition and our faith turn to sight. Friends, there's great comfort and assurance that we are the elect, the chosen of God by His grace. Believers are also exiles of the dispersion. And to be an exile means to be an outsider, foreigner, stranger, 
You go to some country's immigration and they put up a sign that says, Welcome, aliens. <laughs> Join the queue for legal aliens. Right? So that, that's what it means to be an exile. It means to not belong. We don't belong here because this is not finally our home. We're not PRs. We, we're here on a long-term visit pass. And Paul says in Philippians 3, this is because our citizenship is in heaven, not here. You know, now, Claire and I lived in the U.S. for almost seven years. This was uh, while we were working there, and then after that, we, I studied there for a while. And we had a wonderful time in the U.S. You know, we made lots of good friends during our time there. But there was one custom that I just couldn't get used to, you know, just one, one particular custom that stands out, and that was wearing shoes in the house. <laughs> You know, I just, just couldn't bring myself to wear shoes in the house. <laughs> I just, just couldn't get used to that. But thankfully, you know, we had really good American friends who were very understanding. So every time they came to visit us, they would take off their shoes before they entered our home, even though that wasn't the custom for some of them. In fact, some of them asked us, you know, why, why do we walk around barefoot in our homes, especially in the wintertime when the floors are so cold? You know, foreigners often experience a kind of culture shock in an unfamiliar country. And the flip side is also true. Right? Uh, the local culture will find foreigners strange and different. Right? The foreigners will stand out. And this is, the, this is the reason why in the world there is prejudice, there's xenophobia, there's discrimination, there's tension right, between the locals and the foreigners. I think we, we take that for granted. It's, it's almost a way of life in many parts of the world. So if we live as ex elect exiles, then we should expect that this world will find us strange. This world will find us foreign. We shouldn't expect to fit in because of how we live and who we live for. So a question for us as we live as elect exiles, if this is our identity, then we need to ask, how are we living distinct lives among our family and friends, among our co-workers and classmates? Are we different? Do we do family differently from those around us? Are we a, a different friend, different kind of friend? Are we different among our co-workers in the way we work in the marketplace? Are we distinct in why we do what we do? in what motivates us, what makes us get up and go to work on Mondays? Are we different at school in the way we study, in the way we interact with our classmates, in the way we interact with our teachers? Is that different? Will our way of life, our ambitions, our goals, our attitudes, our words, our actions, you know, will our way of life seem strange, but somehow also strangely attractive to those around us? And will how we use our energy, time, our money make those around us curious about why we live in this way? I think Peter kind of mentions this in chapter 3. You know, he says, be prepared to give a reason to those around you for the hope that is in you. And why do these believers have to be prepared to give a reason? Because people are looking at them and wondering, why do you live in this way? Why do you live as though your hope isn't in the things of this world? Kindly explain yourself to us because we don't understand. 
Right? So Peter asked these believers, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And friends, people will only ask this of us if we are living in that way, right? If we're living as though our hope was in this life, then why would they ask us a reason for the hope that is in us? Because they live in the same way. But it's only if we live for a hope that is beyond this world, then our lives will seem strange, unfathomable perhaps, to those around us. And then maybe perhaps people might begin to ask us, why do you live in this way? Why do you live differently? Why isn't your hope in the same things that we are hoping in? So our culture will find us different and strange if we live as elect exiles. And hopefully people will be curious and ask us. And they may want to hear more about Jesus from us. So while we live in this world, we face constant pressure to be off the world. Right? It's not easy to live as exiles in, in this place. You know, I'm a parent of two boys in primary school, uh, and the culture defines the success of our children by their academic achievement. That is a fact of life in the culture that we live in here. Even the education minister had to come up recently to say we need a broader definition of success. You know, even the government is acknowledging that this is a problem, that our definitions of success are so narrow, that they focus on just academic grades, and maybe parents even think that their children are fine simply because they have good grades at school. I think recently there was an article in the papers where the headline, was, the headline said, parents, I'm not okay just because my grades are okay. <laughs> but I can't simply blame the culture. Like, oh, that's the way it is here. You know, just suck it up. Live in this way. No, I, I can't do that because this, this passage tells me that as an elect exile, I need to resist conforming to the culture around me. I can't set my hope on the things of this world. And in fact, I need to set my hope on God and encourage my two sons to do so as well. I need to help them to realize, and I need to realize myself, that their acceptance does not depend on their performance, but on God's love and grace. Friends, how might we be tempted to make too much of this world? How might we be tempted to get too comfortable here? In what ways are we setting our hopes on earthly things like our comfort, our pleasure, our security, our success, as, as this world defines it? I would put it to us that we need more than a broader definition of success. A broader definition of success doesn't really solve the problem if our definition of success is still self-centered. What we need is to be fundamentally God-centered in the way we think about life because we are elect exiles. We belong not to ourselves, but we belong to Him. And therefore, He should be at the center of our lives. And to my non-Christian friends, I'm, I'm really glad that you're here. You know, if you've joined us for the service this morning, a great welcome. I'm so happy that you're here with us. And I would gently ask you the question as well, you know, what are you hoping in? And then the deeper question is, how secure is your hope in the face of uncertainties, in the face of failure, in the face of disappointments, 
and perhaps even death. How secure is your hope? Peter calls Christians exiles to remind us that we are a pilgrim people. We are sojourners, not settlers, passing through the wilderness of this present age until God brings us safely home. And He is guarding for us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, as we'll see next week in verses 3 and 4. And we are of the dispersion, literally diaspora. That's, that's, where, that's, that's that word that dispersion is translated from. You know, diaspora, that, that this term was used to refer to the Jews who were scattered from their homeland, scattered away from Jerusalem. Now, we too are the diaspora because we are also scattered away from our homeland, away from the promised land. And when, when I say promised land, I don't mean Palestine, but what I mean is the new heaven and new earth. That's our promised land. And until we get there, we are the dispersion. Now, when the Jews were scattered away from Jerusalem, what did they do? They started meeting in synagogues. They started gathering in synagogues wherever they were. In fact, in fact, the word synagogue comes from the Greek word meaning to bring together. And similarly, the early Christians would come together as well. Well, on Sunday instead of the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day. And Christians would come together for worship and mutual encouragement. And I think that gives us a pattern for life as elect exiles. We're not meant to uh, live isolated and alone as elect exiles, but we're meant to come together even in the wilderness. We're meant to gather as a local community for mutual encouragement and strengthening. That's why this gathering here today is so encouraging because we've not been able to do this for several months now. Friends, this is a wonderful grace of God to be able to meet as God's people. Yes, it's not ideal. You know, we can't sing. We, we can't spend a lot of time together after the service. You know, apart from a couple of elbow bumps, waves of the hand, you know, we, we can't really interact a lot. But friends, just being here, just being present together, seeing one another face to face, hearing the word in the presence of other believers, this is a wonderful grace of God. And I pray that we'll be able to gather more and more to encourage one another as fellow pilgrims, it's hard enough to live as an elect exile alone. Friends, we don't have to. This gathering is, is a means that God has given to us to, to strengthen one another as we go through this world. So I pray that we will keep coming together. Yes, it's, it's troublesome. You know, you've got to get a ticket online. You have to get vaccinated. You may have to do a test. But friends, these are, these are little inconveniences but hopefully they don't get in the way of us coming together for our own sakes, as well as for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is so because we are elect exiles. So what has God done for us? Right? We've seen who we are as elect exiles, so what has God done for us? How did we get this identity as elect exiles? Was it something that we did for ourselves? You know, we just somehow earned the right to be to be given this identity? How do we get this identity? In other words, how did our conversion happen? Peter says in verse 2 that we are elect exiles because of what 
the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has done for us. Right? He says in verse 2, it is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. And nowhere is the Trinity more gloriously made manifest than in our redemption. You know, verse 2 is a wonderful verse. The, the, the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, each person of the Trinity working in perfect harmony and unity for the good of His people, for the good of God's people. Friends, this triune God is for us if we are in Christ. The Godhead worked for our eternal good. God the Father planned our salvation. Right? Peter tells us he chose us according to his foreknowledge. Now, what does foreknowledge mean? It doesn't merely mean that God knew about us beforehand, but, but it's a richer term than that. You know, when Scripture speaks of God knowing, Scripture means that God loves. Right? To, to know is to love. Right? For example, in, in, in the Bible, it says Adam knew his wife, Eve. It doesn't mean that Adam simply knew about Eve or had lots of information about Eve. No, it means Adam loved Eve. And that's why the next part of the verse is, and they had a son together, right? Adam knew Eve and they had a son. That's, that's what it means to know, it's to love intimately. You know, like for example, God says of Abraham, I have known him in Genesis 18. So God knows us, he loves us by making a covenant with us. And marriage is a lot like that, right? You, you know your wife and you enter into a covenant relationship with her in marriage. So God loves us. He makes a covenant with us. He takes us to be His people and He becomes our God. That's what it means for God to know us. So the Father's foreknowledge simply means that God loved us beforehand. As Oli read for us in the call to worship from Ephesians 1, God chose us in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world, beforehand. God loved us beforehand, according to His foreknowledge. Friends, this is an amazing thought. Just consider this. God loved you from eternity past, even before any of us existed. Now, we love because God first loved us. That, that, that's an amazing thought to consider. We did not choose Him, but He chose us. God the Father took the initiative. He set His love on us. He made the first move. So when we sing how deep the Father's love for us, we can say how vast, beyond all measure. It's immeasurable. We, we can't fathom it. This is an amazing profound truth that our finite, limited minds cannot fully grasp. Knowing that we are loved by God the Father should fill us with such praise and thanksgiving. It should fill us with a tremendous sense of assurance that this God is truly for us. This is especially comforting in tough times when we may be prone to doubt the goodness of God, just like these believers were in 1 Peter. And Peter says, do you, do you question God's love? 
Do you doubt God's goodness towards you? Remember that you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, loved before the foundation of the world. You know, if, if God loved us before time began, we can be sure that He will love us to the end of time and beyond. You know, it's natural for us to want affirmation from others. But there are many times when our desire for approval, our desire for affirmation can become an idol that makes us fear man rather than fear God. You know, how might we struggle with the fear of man? You know, think about your past week. Were there times when you did things simply because you didn't want others to disapprove of you? Were there times when you did things simply to get their affirmation because you really wanted them to like you? Because you didn't want to be unpopular. You wanted to really fit in. You know, how, how, how does the fear of man kind of drive us and motivate us to live our lives? It could be the expectations of our boss. It could be the expectations of our parents, the expectations of our children, our peers. You know, how are we driven by the fear of man? Simply because we desire approval and affirmation from others. So how can we avoid the fear of man? You know, how can we really fear God instead of fearing man? Well, Peter tells us the answer here. It's to remember that we have a heavenly Father who loves us, who approves of us, who affirms us with an everlasting love, one that we didn't earn, one that we could never deserve, but graciously lavished upon us. Friends, we don't need to fear man. We don't need to chase after the fleeting approval of this world because we can rest secure in God's steadfast love. We can rest secure knowing that He loves us from the foundation of the world. And this God is perfectly holy. So if we are to belong to Him, then we must be holy as He is holy. And to be holy simply means to be separate from sin, separate from anything that opposes God, that disagrees with His perfect character. So to be holy means to be set apart for God's glory. But we have all disobeyed God. We have all failed to glorify Him. Our sins have made a separation between us and God. So how can we then be elect exiles? So how can we truly belong to God if our sins have separated us from Him? Well, the passage goes on to say that because, the, because God the Father loves us, He has sent His Spirit and His Son for us. You know, in the second part of verse 2, it says we are saved in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, the sanctification means to purify, to make holy. And there are two aspects of sanctification. I think maybe we're more familiar with, the, with this aspect, which is the growing in holiness part of sanctification. But before we can grow in holiness, there needs to be the other aspect of sanctification, that other aspect needs to first take place. And this other aspect is the Spirit must first make us holy. We need to be made holy in order to grow in holiness. And Peter tells us this sanctification happens in the Spirit. 
the Spirit fulfills God's promise to cleanse His people. Right? It says in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Spirit works in us. The Spirit makes us holy within by giving us spiritual life. He causes us to be born again through the living Word of God. And this work of the Spirit is called regeneration. The Spirit convicts us of our sin. The Spirit convicts us of God's righteousness. And the Spirit cleanses us on the inside by giving us new hearts, by changing our hearts. He takes away our hardened hearts, hearts that are rebellious against God. And He, fills, he gives us a new heart, a heart to love God, a heart to desire Him and His ways, a heart that seeks to glorify Him. And this is the Spirit's work in us, beloved. It's not something that we can do for ourselves, but the Spirit gives us new life by His grace. The Spirit changes our hearts to love, to trust, and obey God. He brings us out of sin's darkness and into the marvellous light of God's glorious grace. And thanks to the Spirit's work in us, our status is changed from sinner to saint. And this is the reason why in the New Testament letters, the letters are addressed to saints. Not because they are good people on their own, but rather it's because God's Spirit has sanctified them, has made them holy. Therefore, the New Testament can be addressed to saints in Jesus Christ. So we have a sure hope of holiness because of God's work in us. So when God calls us to be holy, He isn't calling us to work harder at self-improvement. Right? To be holy doesn't mean that we have to somehow try to renovate ourselves ethically, morally, to try to be good people in our own strength, to try to do better. No, friends, that's not what it means to grow in holiness. To grow in holiness means to live according to this new identity that God has given to us by His Spirit working in us. It's gracious. It's not legalistic. Imagine an orphan child who lives on the streets. He lives on his own because his parents have either died or they've abandoned him. So he fends for himself on the streets, kind of learns to live life on the street. And imagine there's a family who comes along. His family takes this child in, loves him, nourishes him, cherishes him, uh, encourages him to grow, to be healthy, physically, mentally, socially, and, and, and morally as well. Right? So this child begins to live a new life. But this child lives a new life not because he's trying to earn his new identity. No, this child lives a new life because he has been given a new identity because he's been adopted into a new family. And so it is with us. Right? We have a new identity that's given to us because the Spirit sanctifies us, sets us apart as holy. And therefore, Peter can then say to Christians later in his letter, be holy, be who you are because of your new identity as elect exiles. Now, beloved, this means that holiness isn't optional for us because we have a new identity as God's people. 
We obey God not because we are trying to earn our standing with Him, but rather we obey God because it's a grateful response to what God has done for us. And the Spirit works in us for the purpose of leading us to Jesus. Right, look at the rest of verse 2. The Father loves us beforehand. The Spirit sanctifies us. And what, what is all of that for? Peter says it is for obedience to Jesus Christ. In other words, the Spirit gives us new hearts. The Father loves us for the purpose of us obeying Jesus. It's to lead us to faith and repentance. And we obey Jesus by turning away of our rebellion against God and by trusting in Christ alone to save us. That's where the love and the sanctification, the love of God and the sanctification of the Spirit are meant to lead us. It's to obey Christ and to be sprinkled by His blood. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. But Jesus is the good shepherd who has laid down his life for lost sheep. He took God's judgment on behalf of sinners like us so that we can be forgiven and made right with the holy God if we have faith in him. Jesus died on the cross for sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So have we obeyed Jesus by trusting in him to be our only Lord and Saviour. In Exodus 24, Moses consecrated Israel for a covenant relationship with God. And he did so by sprinkling blood on them. You know, if, you have a, if you have the time this afternoon, you can go read, that up, read up Exodus 24. So Moses sprinkled the blood of animal sacrifices on the people, consecrating them to God as his people. The blood of animals cannot take away sins, but it, it does point us to Jesus, the final perfect sacrifice that we need. And His blood, His blood alone, has the power to save us from sins, guilt, and power. And when we obey Jesus, when we trust in Him, He sprinkles us with His blood, meaning that He consecrates us to be God's holy covenant people. He cleanses us of our sins by His blood so that we can come to God and be His people. And unlike the old covenant made with Israel in Exodus 24, this new covenant cannot be broken because it has been sealed with a better sacrifice. It's been sealed with the precious blood of Christ Himself. Our hope is safe because Jesus has bought us with his own blood. We belong to God as his treasured possession because we've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Friends, see what the triune God has done for us, Father, Spirit, and Son. Because of this, Peter can pray for grace and peace to be multiplied to God's people. Our conversion is nothing short of a miracle. I think Peter wants us to see that, that we are elect exiles purely because of this miraculous work that the triune God has accomplished for us. We didn't deserve it. We could never earn it. But it's given to us by a God who loves us. 
that we can be so preoccupied and overwhelmed by our circumstances that we forget who we are. We forget what God has done for us. May it not be so. May these verses cause us to marvel at God's grace for us in the gospel. Beloved, this is our hope. Our hope is found in this God of our salvation. Our hope is not found in the passing things of this world, not in our circumstances, not in our successes in this world, but in this God of our salvation. And this is good news for spiritual refugees like us. No matter the troubles, toils, and snares that we face while living in a fallen world, this God will hold us fast because He has saved us and He will save us in the end. He is our God and we are His people. In the wake of this week's events in Afghanistan, a pastor friend of mine who lives in the Middle East, he reached out to several Afghan pastors that he knows to ask them how he can pray for them, how he can encourage them in the midst of all that's happening. So an Afghan pastor wrote back to my friend and he said these words. And this, this pastor had previously already spent time in prison for his faith. And he said these words to my friend. We can trust that our Lord is mighty and will care for His children. Our hope is not in politics, but in Jesus who is the King. Amen. Beloved, because of the true grace of God, we can stand firm in Him. May God help us to stand firm in His true grace. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we are humbled and amazed as we consider your great love for us. Father, what can we say? What can we say in response to what you've done for us? Father, we are lost in wonder, love and praise. Father, we pray that you would fill our hearts with a fresh grasp of how we are loved by you. Father, strengthen us as we go forth into the wilderness of this world this week. Father, we pray that you would send us forth, not on our own, but send us forth knowing your true grace, standing firm in your true grace. Father, remind us of what you have done for us by your Spirit, by your Son. Father, help us to go with the confidence that we are yours and you are our God. Encourage our hearts, we pray. Help us to set our hopes not on the things of this world, but may our hope be found in you alone. O God of our salvation, draw us near to you, even now. We pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen.